And so for the first topic, we'll start with uh, Israel-Palestine and really take a, a sort of step back from Israel-Palestine. There is news, but it's sort of more we're watching the trend for what the major topics are going to be. And so as this goes on, as obviously the death tally in Gaza continues to rise, uh, surpassing probably 19,000 by now, and making its way well towards 20,000, which is really bad for Israel, because the higher that number goes, the more likely it is that Israel will get a regional intervention against them. And the danger, uh, as me being the observer here, is that I am observing a way in which that's going to happen. Uh, a different way than I thought it may have earlier on, because I was on the assumption back when I was making my initial assessments about the war, Hamas's aims, and how Hamas may actually achieve those aims, courtesy of Israel's response, uh, those aims being the cancellation of the normalization talks uh, between Arabia and Israel, and a regional sympathy for Palestine that ultimately results in a Palestinian state, right? Which, if the Israelis are not agreeable to, will mean a military intervention against Palestine to achieve that Palestinian state. Because none of these refugees want to leave Palestine, and none of the countries that they're leaving to want them. <laughs> The Egyptians don't want this. The Jordanese don't want it. Lebanon doesn't want it. Syria doesn't want it. Uh, well, yeah, Syria doesn't want it. None of these countries want Palestinian refugees in their countries. They want the Palestinians in Palestine. They have every incentive, therefore, to intervene to keep the Palestinians in Palestine, whereas the Israelis are going out of their way to try to eject the entire population of Palestine from Palestine. That's their goal. Their Israel's win condition is ethnic cleansing. Palestine's win condition, and looking primarily at Hamas, is a regional intervention against Israel to stop the ethnic cleansing. It, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. And I said it from the beginning. But the way in which I envisioned that regional intervention against Israel was sort of like, like a video game, or I'll admit, my fault here was thinking about it in terms of like a, like a video game, or like, say, Napoleon, when the, the new coalition, every new coalition would get formed against him, and they'd all go into war together. You know, that's how I was looking at this, right? Where if Israel sort of steps over that line, they do the big ground defensive into Gaza, which they, they haven't done, they, they've kept their operations uh, minimal, right minimal not the not necessarily the air campaign but their ground operations minimal they've done that but because they've avoided the big offensive they've avoided offending everyone else big time and they've warded off the consequences that would have come with a a full ground invasion of gaza for the time being you know I, it could it could be that the second i upload this episode they'll uh, I'll just look at the news tomorrow when I wake up and go, oh yeah, Israel just conducted a massive full-scale invasion of Gaza to try to finish Hamas. We're going to finish them off once and for all. And it's like, oh, okay, well, there, there goes yesterday's analysis. So now I have to just eat that loss real quick. You know, it's a possibility. It wouldn't be the first time that happened to me. 
but I was looking at this from the perspective of they go in, they they cross that red line, and then uh, their neighbors in whatever configuration, spe whatever specific neighbor collection, uh, uh, whether whether it be Turkey, Egypt, Iran, or uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, or, or uh, Arabia, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, or uh, all of them, or you know Jordan, Hezbollah, Lebanon, Syria, you know w whatever configuration it would be, I figured. That once Israel crossed that red line, all of those countries within the coalition would go to war simultaneously, and it would be a, a really bad day to be an Israeli. That's how I was envisioning this. But observing the events as I have, because I found I find that that's a really efficient way of getting context uh, for these situations, and is a really good way of steering clear of the pitfalls of being. Um, too zoomed in to the crisis. I observed that this could actually be more of a waterfall type thing where individual actors on this regional stage come in and start attacking Israel from one angle or another for their own reasons. And then they just don't stop. Now, last week, I talked about the Houthis and how they started drone striking Israeli ships, Israeli uh, freight in shipping containers moving through the Red Sea. Now, for those who don't know, if you get your maps, you go to Africa, uh, you see Africa, you see Saudi Arabia, that body of water between Africa and Saudi Arabia, that's the Red Sea, right? And if you look at where Yemen is, straight to the, the southwest, so to speak, not the west, the southeast, there we go, of Saudi Arabia, Yemen is right where the Red Sea sort of tightens up into the, there's a name for the straits, but it's, I do not have it memorized, I'll be honest, I do not, it's something, I'll, I butchered that really badly, but I'm just going to call it the Straits of Djibouti because Djibouti is right there, and it's it's easier to name. You can find Djibouti on a map because it's right there. It's right it's right across from Yemen. So the Straits of Djibouti, just like the the Straits of Hormuz to the north, uh, where you see the UAE sort of spiking towards Iran, that little narrow gap, that little narrow passageway. These areas are choke holds. These are choke points that are easy to close off even in a, a de facto way. Because make no mistake, the Houthis have not put a naval blockade up to prevent shipping from moving through this passage. They've just started drone striking and drone bombing Israeli shipping specifically. So we also see uh, the, the way in which drones have in, impacted the ability to control trade flows which is another thing that is new for the usage of drones. We haven't seen drones used in this way before to control shipping lanes. That's new, right? And it's kamikaze. And from my understanding, they're using kamikaze drones as well. They're just, they just have really big bombs on them. And if you're attacking a, a cargo ship, the cargo ship can't fight it back. So they just have to eat that loss and by bombing these cargo ships, even without doing 
much significant damage. Like they'll, they'll bomb the ship. They've captured a couple of them uh, with the you know speed the speedboat tactic where you swarm it with a bunch of speedboats. You come in like a Somali pirate and you take the boat back to you. You know the same way the Iranians do the U.S. Navy when we move in too close to their waters. The same way that the Somali pirates do it whenever a cargo ship gets close enough. You know doing it that way, r- really low tech but effective. They're changing the game of global shipping. Like we we were talking uh, about a year or two ago when we first observed Iranian and Israelis shooting at each other's shipping. And we were looking at that. And I suppose that what's happening with Yemen and Israel now is sort of a, a, a natural extension of what we had already witnessed where the Israelis were bombing Iranian shipping, the Iranians were seizing Israeli ships, and now the Houthis have just joined in on the party at a really bad moment in time for Israel, using some of the latest technology, drones, and other tried and true methods of getting control of a ship to just swarm it and steal it. These are what they've done. And by doing it this way, you have not necessarily harmed the trade flows of everyone, right? Because if you put up a blockade, you're inconveniencing everyone. You've only attacked the Israeli ships, meaning that only shipping going to Israel has to worry about being attacked. Now, that's still a decent number of ships, but that disincentivizes everyone else from intervening on Israel's behalf to to try to stop this. Because quite frankly, no one has the wherewithal to stop the Houthis uh, aside from uh, maybe America. Like no one can, no one's going to stop them. No one's going to stop them and no one wants to stop them. Which is sort of my next point here now after assessing and, you know, uh, refreshing the memory about how the Houthis have been doing this and how this is actually an extension of what we saw between Israel and Iran for years now. With the Houthis bombing uh, Israeli shipping in the way that they are and seizing a couple of ships, uh, we have have the, the U.S. and Britain sending warships to try to stop this and they have shot down a a number of these drones but the damage has kind of already been done shipping it doesn't feel safe ships don't feel safe traversing the red sea if they're going to israel or if they're coming from israel they're going they're going around africa they're going around africa through the mediterranean if they if they're coming into israel from say the east like india uh, Arabia or China, Indonesia, what's what have you. If they're coming from there, going to Israel, they're going around Africa now. That hurts Israel economically because they have they have to foot the bill for that if it's their ships and other countries trying to do trade with Israel have to foot that bill to avoid the drama caused by the Houthis. I mean that they're going to be more incentivized to just do trade with someone else to find other customers for these goods. That hurts. So Yemen, specifically the Houthis we're talking about, has found a new angle to attack Israel on an economic front 
without even attacking Israel itself, not really. They're attacking ships in the Red Sea. And no one's going to stop them. Because there's there's been a lot in primarily American news media about how oh, everything's an Iranian proxy now, if you've noticed. Oh, the Iran-backed militias in Syria. Iran-backed militias. Oh, Iran and its proxies. Iran and its proxies. Everything's an Iranian proxy now. <laughs> and that that that's them building the narrative for us to go to war with Iran. Which, and technically the Houthis could be classified as that. They are certainly backed by Iran. Oh, Iran-backed Houthis bomb these ships. But uh, Iran-backed does not necessarily mean Iran-controlled. And this is a key distinction. Iran-backed does not mean Iran-controlled. Iran does not... Iran backs a lot of people in the region, Hezbollah and yeah, and the Houthis included, with those being the, the two biggest names that I can mention. But they do not control Hezbollah. They do, and they certainly don't control the Houthis. And what the Houthis have done has, again, opened my eyes to the possibility of another way in which this coalition against Israel could manifest itself in manifest is my my new favorite word if you noticed <laughs> but they've opened my eyes to an, another way in which this can happen and i think it's a more realistic way and for israel a more dangerous way because it's more organic and natural certain actors on this regional stage just start attacking israel out of convenience for their own reasons and no one compels them to stop because Iran, for, for all the talk in America about we need to go get at Iran, we need to take Iran out of the oil bin, Iran this and Iran that, all the for all the slander we've been putting on Iran's name, they have actually been is one of Israel's uh, best friends in this conflict, uh, inadvertently, ironically even. Because they, along with the Arabians, the Qatar, the UAE, and, and Egypt, they have those five countries have been working round the clock especially the arabians with the saudis in a close second uh well i say the arabians especially the iranians and the saudis in a close second they've been working round the clock 24 7 since this war began trying to keep the fighting contained to just israel and palestine they've been doing that since day one of this latest round of fighting and they have been largely successful. Largely successful. To their much, much to their credit, especially considering where they stand. They don't like Israel. They want Palestine to have sovereignty. That's where they stand. But their pri their primary goal is to keep the fighting contained and ultimately to snuff it out. You know, to to they're trying to strangle a war is what they're trying to do. The, the cooperation of the Egyptians, the Arabians, uh, Qatar, and the UAE. Qatar has been sort of mediating deals between uh, Israel and various other, organization, uh, or other organizations. Uh, I just read an article talking about how Israel is... They, they met a minister of... Was it, was it Hamas's leader? I think it was Hamas's leaders. I'm not... I'm 
uh, I'm really trying to make sure I'm not um, misreporting this. But they met a delegation of Palestinians. I'll, I'll just say that. I think it was Hamas's leaders. But this this sort of uh, mediation, this talk was mediated by the by Qatar. And they met in Oslo. Uh, Oslo being uh, the capital of Norway. So uh, another a neutral country, a neutral mediator, and then you have is the head of Mozad. That's who it was. The head of Mozad is the Israeli intelligence service meeting with the heads of Hamas in Norway, and that whole ordeal was mediated by Qatar. So Qatar has been playing a role in trying to get the ceasefire. That that's the role that they've been playing with Arabia backing them. Iran has been trying to contain the conflict. Egypt has been helping out where it can. UAE has been helping out where it can and also trying to get a, another ceasefire going. So Iran's been working on conflict containment and Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, and the UAE have been working on conflict ending, right? So it's been a, a, um, a back-to-back effort, right? They've been piggybacking off of each other, trying to build off of each other. Iran containing the conflict and through exercising what influence it has over Hezbollah, over Hamas, over other militias in the region who would love to shoot them some Israelis. Like, there's a lot of bad blood going on. Iran is exercising its influence to keep that from, to keep that from going to its logical conclusion. And the rest have been trying to end the conflict by getting a ceasefire. They succeeded for a week. They're trying to get another one right now. And that's actually what uh, the head of Mo- the head of Mozad and the, the Palestinian uh, well, Hamas leaders were there to discuss in Oslo. They were there to discuss another ceasefire. That's what they've been doing. But Iran can only exercise so much influence because the mistake that is uh, rather a deliberate mistake because it's not like I'm not going to act as though these people don't know this. These people in our government, these people in our intelligence services, they know Iran doesn't control all of these groups. If they control some of them, they certainly don't control all of these militias and all of these groups. Iran does not control Hezbollah. They're allied, but they that doesn't mean control. Iran does, uh, they really don't control the Houthis. The Houthis can do whatever the fuck they want. Iran just happens to back them in that case. It, so the, the, the field of control gets weaker the farther away from Iran you go, with the Houthis being uh, uh, as far outside of that direct sphere of control as you can get while still being in Iran's sphere of influence. And the problem that Israel has here is again that there are limits to Iran's ability to control these allied partners. They cannot control Hezbollah. Hezbollah has been firing rockets, not to the same degree as they could, right? They 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 could, ooh, they could ruin Israel's day in a heartbeat if they wanted to. They they, they could, they could. They've just been firing missiles, keeping keeping the Israelis on guard, forcing them to continue expending their Iron Dome ammunition to take out a few hundred dollar rockets with multi-million dollar missiles. 
an economic attrition that the Israelis can't keep up, an industrial attrition that the Israelis are not going to be able to keep up with. They're already begging us for weapons. They're going to run out. And when they run out, when the reality, when the military realities change to such a degree, other options are going to light up on the other side. So when it becomes apparent that Israel no longer has the wherewithal to stop as many rockets from raining down on their own cities as they do now and as they did before the, the conflict began, this round of fighting, I should say, when that becomes apparent to everyone else, everyone else are going to start to get ideas. Oh, Israel doesn't have enough ammunition to stop all these rockets. Well, maybe I'll fire a rocket or two. Oh, I'll fire a rocket or two as well. And then more damage gets done to Israel. And, it's, and then that itself opens up new realities. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, Israel's really, they're really getting messed up right now. I guess they're weak. Oh, Israel's weak. We Maybe we can go in. Maybe... Maybe we, maybe we, our militia, insert militia name here. Maybe we, maybe we can go attack the Israelis. You know, maybe we'll, we'll just do a cross-border raid. You know, you know, you know, in and out. You know, uh, you know, slam them and, and then run. These things could happen. The problem for Israel is that Iran can only exercise so much control over these militias and over these allies that they have. And beyond that, the Iranians, uh, they, again, they cannot control these people. They cannot control Hezbollah. Hezbollah has been raining rockets down on Israel at a much slower pace than a lot of their fighters would like. But they've been doing it. But they've been constrained. They've been restrained. Iran is restraining them, not controlling. The Houthis have said, fuck restraint. We're just going to bomb Israeli shipping now. And the reason that that's significant is because it has not just opened my eyes to a, a, a way in which drones can be used and a way in which this thing can be escalated, uh, but it's, it's the how the escalation happens. Because they just woke up one day and chose violence, right? They woke up one day and chose violence there's a lot of public sentiment in a lot of these Arab and a lot of these Islamic countries to do something about the Israelis. The Houthis are doing something now. And it hurts. But the way in which I see this um, highlighting the possibility of escalation is because not only can no one stop them from doing it, and I, I mean no one, Arabia was, has been fighting a war against the Houthis for a, a decade now. They can't win that war, so they can't stop them. Oman is not even going to try. Iran could choose not to back the Houthis by giving them money and weapons, which they may ultimately do eventually at some point anyway. But that's not going to stop them. They, no one can stop the Houthis from doing what they're doing. So not only can no one stop them, but when I think about the motivations involved, no one has any incentive to stop them. No, none of their neighbors, none of the countries in this region either want to stop the Houthis from doing what they're doing. And those that may want to, you know, behind closed doors may want to stop the Houthis from bombing the shipping, Israeli shipping. They have no incentive to follow through on those desires 
because of the pressure put on them by their public. Because the public opinion in all these countries is we should be doing something about Palestine. We don't want their refugees. We want them to stay in Palestine. We Are you just going to sit there and watch as a, as a genocide occurs in, in Gaza? These are the things that are going through uh, the public circles in a lot of these majority Arab and majority Islamic countries. What are we going to do, especially the ones that are in the region and who have the ability to do something? What are you doing about Gaza is what they're saying to their governments. There is a lot of pressure to do something about Gaza, even as these governments are working round the clock to, one, stay out of the conflict, and two, to end the conflict, to contain the conflict, to stay out first and foremost, to contain the conflict so it doesn't expand, and then to end the conflict so they stop having, so they don't have to worry about it. But the Houthis have now entered the fray. No one can stop them, and even if they could, most countries don't want to, and the ones that would want to stop them have no incentive to stop. There's no incentive. You what you're because think about the optics of that. You're gonna stop, you're gonna intervene against the Houthis on behalf of Israel. Why would you do that? The, the Houthis are attacking the infidels, the, the Houthis are attacking these, these genocidal maniacs who are killing Palestinian civilians in Gaza. They're doing something about this crisis. They're ta- they're putting the hurt on these people, and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna intervene against a, a fellow Arab, a, a fellow Islamic country, to save the ass of Israel. No, none of, none of these countries are gonna do that. Meaning, and if no one stops uh, uh, the Houthis, then they're just gonna continue, and that's how the escalation happens. Because it's not just the Houthis who have incentive to do this. A lot of in rogue actors have incentives to, have, uh, not just incentives, but straight up bones to pick with Israel. And a lot of them are probably going to be thinking now about ways in which they can pick those bones. And once they start picking those bones, no one's going to stop them. If Hezbollah decides that they want to start dropping, they want to start doubling and tripling the number of rockets they're sending at Israel, who's going to stop them? No one. If and let's not even get into how Turkey is actively actively priming their population for a war with Israel right now. Uh, they're from not just the, the president but members of the Turkish parliament. They're all they're going all in on this war right they're try they're actively instigating a war turkey could just show up one day and that's that's what erdogan has said he, we could just show up one day and start bombing you start shooting at you who's going to stop the turks if they decide to do that cuz quite frankly the only country in the region with the wherewithal to fight off the turkish military would be the iranians they're not going to do that and if the turks show up well, why, what incentive does Hezbollah have to continue being restrained when they have a really big and powerful ally that they have a border with saying, let's go in? Hezbollah is going to say, well, OK, we're going to go in. You go in, you be the front and we'll be in the back. Every time they push the line, we'll, we have guerrilla warfare. We'll, 
we'll push them out with you. We'll, we'll fire the rockets. You will you'll use air bases here. It, it'll be a, a cooperative effort. If Turkey comes in, Hezbollah has no incentive to remain constrained. They have no incentive to continue being restrained in their response to Israel's actions in Gaza. So then that's multiple parties. And once they're in, there's no incentive for any of the countries trying to contain this conflict, trying to end this conflict. There's no incentive for any of them because they are Arab, because they're Islamic. They have no incentive to stop fellow Arab or fellow Muslim countries from intervening. And so the coalition builds over time rather than being an all at once thing. And that's the danger I've noticed with uh, what's happening with the Houthis uh, attacking Israel in the Red Sea. A very, uh, I would say small if it wasn't so significant. And from a strategic standpoint, ingenious, like if you're going to fight someone, fight them in a way that they can't fight you back. Israel has no way of fighting them back. Like they need America and Britain to bail them out. And we're, we may or may not be successful with that. It's a, a brilliant move from is one of Israel's uh, ops, if you will. Uh, but that's the danger I've noticed. And the Houthis have opened my eyes to it in the way in which they've intervened and the way in which no one is going to stop them because no one has any incentive to. And then I realized that that would apply to literally everyone else in this region, should anybody else intervene as well. I fear for the Israelis. I do fear. But look, you heard it here first on this podcast. I've been saying that they needed course correction a long time ago. This is part of the outcome of not doing that. So... Pray for Israel, uh, not necessarily that they win the war, uh, but pray that they get their heads screwed on right and start acting as if their lives depended on it, because uh, they do. All they have to do is leave Gaza, right? All they have to do is leave Palestine, because it's unrealistic. It's incredibly unrealistic to go, we want, we want peace, we don't want this war, but we're not going to stop occupying your country. It's like, well, sure. Sure. But you're never going to have that peace if you don't stop occupying the country. And the immediate go-to is that, oh, we'll just be attacked again because that's what uh, the Palestinians, that's what Hamas always does. And to be fair, that is what Hamas has done every time. So it, it's, an, it's a nasty cycle. It's another one of those nasty cycles, which... I don't necessarily have the solution to. I'm not going to pretend like I do. But uh, what I can say is that bombing civilians in Gaza isn't going to help you. Uh, and and I'll, I'll leave it there. I will leave it there. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.